0: Namo Tassa bhagavata agahata samma Sambodassa. Namo Tassa bhagavata agahata samma Sambodassa. Namo atasabhagavato arahato As we have seen over the past few days, the outstanding landmark of the Buddha's teaching is his teaching of anatta, impersonality, or the non-self nature of all phenomena. The Buddha discovered that there is no such thing as an I, ego, self or soul that exists independently or that is everlasting and permanent. However, he clearly stated that there exists a combination of mental and physical phenomena. A so-called person or being, is just this combination of mental and physical processes. When we use the word a person, or a being, or a dog, a cat, a snake, then these words are just a designation to conveniently describe something which consists of this dual process of mental and physical phenomena. So, to believe in an solidly or permanently existing entity, an I, an ego, or a soul, is like believing that a rainbow has some real substance or solidity. Like a child believing that the rainbow is something solid on the sky. Not knowing in its ignorance that a rainbow is just a wonderful illusion created by drops of water and sunlight. It's ignorance, delusion, not knowing how things really are that most of the people believe or think that such an entity as me or I or self actually does exist. So the Buddha's quite revolutionary discovery was the fact that the so-called I or self was non-existent, that it was a wonderful Illusion created by the ignorant mind. And as just mentioned before, the Buddha did not say then that really nothing exists, but he said that there exists a combination of changing forces which are in a constant flux. And this combination of changing forces, what are they? These changing forces that are in a constant flux, never staying the same for two consecutive moments, these are the so-called five aggregates. So whatever mental or physical processes there are, they can be grouped into five groups or, as they are called, aggregates. And so what are these aggregates that make up a so-called person or being? One of the aggregates is the aggregate of form or materiality. That means every uh, kind of matter, material things, including our body, belongs to this aggregate of matter or form, materiality. The Remaining four aggregates are all mental phenomena, mental processes. And there we have the aggregate of feeling, then we have the aggregate of perception, the aggregate of mental formations, and the aggregate of consciousness. So these five aggregates, one is material, four are mental, they make up what we call me or I or the ego, a person, a being. As we have come to experience during our meditation practice, our body, does not stay the same the whole day long. Sometimes the body is heavy, sometimes it is light. There are different sensations of heat or cold or tingling or pricking or vibrations occurring in the body. And also these sensations do not stay the same all the time. And with feelings, for example, Sometimes it feels pleasant, but then, after a while, the pleasantness goes and is replaced by unpleasantness. So again, it's, it's changing. And so, with the other aggregates as well. So, nothing in this body and mind actually lasts longer than the split of a second. And in that famous Lakana Sutta, the discourse on the characteristic of non-self that the Buddha gave to the five ascetics, he explicitly stated that in none of these five aggregates a solid or permanent entity can be found. There is no self neither in matter. There is no self in feeling, no self in perception, no self in mental formations, and no self is to be found in the consciousness. So the Buddha realized that more than 2,500 years ago, by just looking inside, inside his body, inside his mind. Nowadays, scientists have come to the same conclusion, at least on the material level, not being able to find the so-called smallest durable material unit, seeing that things are coming into existence and then disintegrating, disintegrating very quickly, or that form uh, solidifies to matter, and then it dissolves and is just some kind of energy, and again is solidified, solidified into matter. So the Buddha's revolutionary discovery led him to freedom, freedom from suffering or uh, with that he attained to perfect and lasting happiness and peace because his discovery was a personal direct and intuitive experience of what he realized. The discovery of the scientist is a mere intellectual uh, discovery that they made with some very costly and sophisticated instruments. So their discovery has not the power to free them from their unsatisfactoriness, cannot lead them to full liberation. The Buddha (coughs) understood that actually to understand the whole universe it was enough to look inside to look into the body and mind because these bodily and mental phenomena our body and mind are natural processes they belong to nature and the universe also is governed by the same natural laws. So by looking inside and discovering the laws that are working in this body and mind, at the same time we understand the universal laws, the laws that are working out in nature, in the universe. So when we embark on an inner journey, we find that it can be quite um, interesting or even can be quite an adventure, exhilarating. Before I became a nun, I traveled around the world and for me at that time, it was quite interesting to discover so many new places. To see so many uh, unknown things to me, to reach quite far away places, quite remote places. Like, as I mentioned, I had been in Nepal, in the Himalayas, but also in the northern part of India, Ladakh, which is part of the Indian Himalayas. So what I saw and discovered there was quite amazing and surprising, wonderful or exhilarating at times. At other times, I also came to see and experience quite distressing things or things that made me sad. Initially, I started out traveling To discover the world. But later it became obvious that this was not actually my uh, aim or goal, but that it was just a pretense to actually discover myself. And so later on, when I started to practice meditation in a formal way, then I realized that this inner journey was even more exciting, was more interesting than everything else that I had experienced on my worldly travels. Of course, I could not imagine or fathom that just sitting still on a cushion, not going anywhere, that one could discover and experience such amazing and even thrilling things. So, once I found out about that, my desire or urge to travel around the world uh, stopped. <laughs> but now I find myself traveling around the world again, well, to teach meditation, <laughs> which is a different thing. So now let's go back to these five aggregates. As I mentioned, one aggregate belongs to the body or pertains to matter, materiality. And so, in our meditation practice, when we observe our body, it means that we are observing the aggregate of materiality. Our body, as well as any other material thing, basically exists or consists of the so-called four primary material elements. These four primary material elements are the earth element then the water element the fire element and the wind or air element when we speak of these four elements earth water fire and wind or air it does not mean actual earth or actual water or fire or the wind. But these uh, words are just designations for certain qualities that we can find in earth, water, fire or wind. So the earth element stands for the qualities of hardness, and softness. The water element stands for the qualities of fluidity and cohesion. The fire element stands for the qualities of heat and cold. Actually, we also could call this element the element of temperature. And the wind or air element stands for the qualities of movement, motion, vibration, or support. So the first of this elements, the earth element, that's called Patavidatu in Pali. As I just said, it stands for the qualities of hardness or softness. So for example, when we are touching a hard object, this may be a cup or the handle of a door. So when we touch this object, then quite obviously it feels hard. And so, being aware of this hardness means that we are actually aware of the earth element as manifested as hardness. When we touch or come in contact with something that is rather soft, maybe the cushion uh, or the pillow, then Feeling that softness of the object uh, means that we are aware of the quality of softness pertaining to the earth element. Sometimes when we sit down for meditation on our soft cushion, then in the beginning, yes, we feel it as softness but as we sit for a certain uh, period of time, then the initial softness that we feel changes. And towards the end of our sitting meditation, actually we feel it as quite hard. So this initial sensation of softness has changed and we feel it as hard. So the earth element has this um... characteristics can be either hard or soft or we can even uh... see the change from hardness into softness maybe the other way around something that we initially experience or feel as soft no, as hard then may turn into what we feel is a rather soft uh, sensation. Maybe the hardness that we feel towards the end of the sitting meditation is so strong and dominant that we pay our full attention to that hard sensation on the buttocks. And when mindfulness is good enough and our concentration deep enough, then when we carefully look at what we think is just this solid, hard chunk that we feel under our buttocks, then we start to see that this hard uh, feeling is not just one big feeling of hardness but that it breaks up and that we feel tiny little spots that are hard or even we can see these tiny little spots of hardness as they arise uh, stay a little bit and then disappear and the next little uh, sensation of hardness comes and goes so in this way we see that the earth element is also nothing really solid or permanently existing but that the earth element too is just momentary arising of hardness or softness but because it's happening with such great speed. For the normal, untrained uh, mind, it just looks as something really solid and hard, staying the same all the time. Then the second of these elements is the water element. In Paris, it is called apotato. And it has the characteristics of fluidity and cohesion. As I said, it's not real water, but just these qualities, these characteristics of flowing, something that flows, or that quality of sticking together, holding together, cohesion and it's actually this water element that is responsible that for example the atom uh, the atom is held together the part uh, the and uh, that they did not do not just disperse or if you have some flour you want to make some bread so if you pour some flour on the kitchen table, then the flour will stay there as a heap of flour. And this is so because this quality of cohesion of holding together makes it as a heap of flour on the kitchen table. If that quality of cohesion were not present, then if you pour the flour, it immediately would just disperse all over the kitchen and you would have quite a mess. So the water element can be experienced by a meditator in the following way. For example in the walking meditation as the yogi mindfully notes let's say, the lifting, the pushing, and the dropping movement of the foot. Then, at one stage, it seems to the meditator that whenever he or she puts the foot down on the floor and then wants to lift it up again, it feels as if the sole of the foot is somehow sticky on the ground or that there is like a sticky substance on the floor that makes it somehow difficult to lift the foot up or they feel that kind of stickiness. And of course, first of all, the meditator is quite surprised and thinks maybe there must be something on the sole of my foot or the sole on the sandal or maybe maybe some chewing gum is uh, stuck on the floor and then in his or her curiosity stops walking and looks at the sole of the foot or the sole of the shoe but there is nothing there and also on the ground there is no sticky substance there and so the meditator goes on walking and again the same phenomena happens. And so then in the next interview, when he reports this experience and says, what is happening? And then the teacher may say that this is how the water element, the characteristic of cohesion uh, can be experienced. The characteristic of fluidity, of flowing, can also be um, experienced, for example, in the sitting meditation. When it is not, when the weather is not very hot, the meditator in his or her sitting meditation. All of a sudden, may experience like some sweat running down the cheek, or some sweat running down the body. And because the weather is not very hot, this seems quite strange. But yeah, it feels like a drop of sweat is running down the cheek, or a drop of tear running down the cheek very clearly feeling this sensation of something flowing down the cheek. And again, in his or her curiosity, the person might go and touch the face to wipe off the sweat or the tear, but then he finds the cheek completely dry or checking here on the chest, completely dry, no sweat, running down. And so, again, this is how the water element can be experienced by a meditator. The characteristic of flowing, of fluidity. Then, the third element is the so-called fire element. Tejo Dato in Pali and its characteristics are heat and cold so different degrees of temperature and also this can be felt in the body it can be felt in relation to the weather to the outer temperature when it is very hot our body feels rather hot when it is cold then our body feels cold but it also can happen that when it's not particularly hot outside that a meditator gets these waves of heat going through the body or certain spots in the body may feel very hot sometimes it's cold feeling of a chill that just goes through the body or arises in some parts of the body. We also can notice it in relation to some mental states. Mental states of anger, hatred, rage, they are compared to a fire burning within. And this is actually quite a good description because when we get angry, when we get into a rage, our body uh, starts feeling hot. And even when we get really into a strong rage, then we might even um, start sweating, sweat running down our face. And our face becomes all red the fire burning within whereas other mental states are rather cooling and soothing for example metta loving kindness is a state that cools your body that soothes your body. And those who practice intensive metta meditation for several weeks or months actually can come to that state because when the mind gets so uh, filled with loving kindness and when any form of anger or ill will or Uh, hatred is absent. Uh, The mind really is peaceful and loving and kind. So this cooling effect of that mental state can be felt in the body. So even if the weather is quite hot when metta loving kindness is really strong and pervading the whole body and mind, then that person actually feels cool and it can go uh, as far as the person goes and puts around the blanket because the body feels so cool so cool down and the last of these four material primary elements is the air or wind element In Pari it's called vayodatu, and its characteristics are movement, motion, vibration, and support. So this element or its characteristics can be experienced in the sitting when we observe the rising and falling movement of the abdomen or in the walking, observing the movement of the foot or else in observing or being mindful of daily activities getting up, brushing teeth, uh, etc. So this element we observe quite often and As I already mentioned in one of my previous talks, in the walking meditation, when our mindfulness gets better, then we come to that point that when we observe the movement of the foot, then all we see or experience is just movement and we lose the notion of a foot. as I mentioned in my Anatta talk, so this can be a first glimpse of Anatta, non-self, nature, because there is just something moving and something is observing it. If the foot or even the whole leg disappears, then we do not have a leg or a foot anymore to identify with. Or sometimes, even the whole form, the, the form of the whole body disappears, and what is left is just movement and the observing of it. And so, then it's difficult to say, I am walking. At that moment, it is experienced as something is walking or it is walking. it's the movement then also can be experienced in a later stage as not one smooth continuous movement that starts at one point and goes through to its end, but with deepening mindfulness then the movement falls, starts to fall apart. Or first of all, it feels a bit jerky. It's not that smooth, nice movement anymore, but it goes a little bit like that. And later it becomes very clear as a series of separate little movements. Just one after the other in a succession. And so with that we also come to realize that movement as a characteristic of the air or wind element is nothing permanently or solidly existing but that it is also subject to constant arising and passing away. One moment of movement arises to instantly pass away, and the next little moment aris- movement arises and passes away, followed by the next little movement. So it's just this series of um, broken movements happening uh, in great speed, one after the other. And to the untrained mind, this gives the illusion of a smooth continuous movement. Some years ago there was a foreign meditator meditating at the Chamye Gita in Yangon at the time uh, with Chamye Sayadaw. And one day when that meditator went for his interview he paid respect to Sayadaw and said, Sayadaw. You know, it doesn't meditation doesn't work anymore. It's really nothing. Um, I better go home. I will leave this afternoon. And then Chami Sayadaw said, "Well, you know, tell me what has happened." And so this meditator said, "You know, two days ago when I did my walking meditation, the movement of the foot." started to become a bit jerky. It wasn't that nice, smooth flow anymore as I had experienced it up to that point. And so then I tried very hard to make it smooth and continuous again. But the more I tried, the jerkier it got. And so I think, you know, I'm going crazy so I better leave from here and go back home. And then Samyayatou looked at him and said, No, no. You're not getting crazy. You are actually recovering from craziness. Finally discovering what movement actually is. How it really is not being fooled anymore by our uh, delusion, by our not knowing. So, all these four primary material elements are not solidly, firmly existing qualities. But they too are just momentary arisings. Momentary arisings that follow each other in very quick succession and so give the illusion uh, of something permanent or um, inherently existing. So all these four primary material elements are impermanent. They are just arising and disappearing. And that's why the Buddha said the body or material phenomena being uh, consisting out of these elements. So the body material phenomena are not the self or they cannot be the seed of a self or an everlasting soul. And the Buddha compared form, material form, materiality to foam. Like foam, there is no substance to it. If you want to grab it and really get hold of it, it just dissolves in your fingers. And so the Buddha then said, if materiality was self or an indestructible entity, then it would not lead to affliction. It would not lead to suffering. Because then we would have the control over it. So He would not let, not allow that this body or any material form would cause affliction or suffering. This is materiality, the first aggregate. And as I said, the other four aggregates are all mental phenomena feeling. This um, aggregate is called Vedana, Vedana Khanda in Pari. And with feeling, in the Buddhist sense, we only refer to the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral aspect of an experience. So it's not feeling like I feel tired or I feel happy I feel great but feeling only uh, relates to these three aspects so we could say that um, feeling is the effective quality of an experience whatever the experience has one of these three effective effective qualities. It's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral which means it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And pleasant and unpleasant feelings uh, are more easily recognized. A completely neutral feeling is a bit more difficult to recognize. And when we have a pleasant feeling, then mostly we react to that experience with liking, with attachment, with clinging to it, with the desire to get more of it. experience, unpleasant feelings, we mostly react with aversion or pushing away of dislike, of ill will, resentment with something that we rather don't want. Neutral feelings, with that we mostly stay uh, unaffected. So it's especially the pleasant and unpleasant feelings that we should carefully note in order not to fall in this habitual reaction of reacting with attachment, clinging, desire to a pleasant feeling or reacting with aversion, anger, ill will, pushing away to an unpleasant feeling. And as we also know from our experience in meditation, as well as in all our, our daily life, most of the time we are trying to get the circumstances or conditions right to have pleasant experiences. And we try to avoid anything that would cause unpleasant Experiences. So, you know, through the six Sense Doors, we want to get nice and pleasant inputs. So we want to see nice things. We want to hear uh, soothing and pleasant sounds. We want to smell good smells, fragrance, well, smells. We want to taste nice and delicious tastes. Our tangible uh, experiences should also be of a pleasant nature. And the mind, the thoughts, or mental states, they also should be of a pleasant nature. And so always trying to get it right, to get it uh, pleasant, We are in this frenzy of always trying to change our outer surroundings to get it right. And maybe we get it almost perfect, that we have no disturbing sounds or tastes or smells. Then we are happy. But as soon as our neighbor turns on the loud stereo, uh, we are disturbed again. So rather than trying to get our surroundings right all the time, we should should, uh, observe these feelings. So when feelings arise of a pleasant or an unpleasant nature, then we should be carefully aware of them, noting pleasant, pleasant, pleasant if it's a pleasant feeling, noting unpleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant when it is an unpleasant experience. When we can catch the feeling in its initial state and when it is just mindfully observed as either pleasant or unpleasant, then we do not fall into our habitual reaction of either liking it or disliking it and then we do not um, fall into this unwholesome mental state and it is also important to be aware of feelings to carefully observe them because it is through feeling that uh, craving arises. And so, in the chain of dependent origination, it says dependent on feeling, craving arises, danha, and dependent on craving, there arises clinging, upadana, and that. Um, Leads to becoming, and that leads to uh, the whole chain of um, birth and death. So this whole dependent origination, this whole cycle that uh, just goes on and on and on, if there is, if it is not broken, it can actually be broken. Uh, between the link of feeling and craving. Because when we observe feeling carefully, then, as I said, there arises no craving. And craving is not only uh, the Loba effect of greed and uh, wanting desire, but also Uh, the dosa effect because if the feeling is unpleasant then we get aversion or hatred but we want to get away from that experience so again it's wanting it's desire so when we can sort of interrupt this whole chain at the link of feeling, when we do not fall prey to craving, then when there is no more craving, then there is no more clinging, and with no more clinging there is no more becoming, and so the whole change chain of dependent origination can be broken and we can get out of the cycle of samsara. Feeling is also of a very fleeting nature. It is also arising and passing away momentarily. We also can come to experience it in this way during our meditation practice. When we look carefully enough, then either a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling can be seen as just little moments of pleasantness arising and disappearing. And the Buddha compared feeling to bubbles. It's like a pot of water that is near to the boiling point. Maybe you have seen that when you boil a pot of water, then just before it starts really boiling all these little bubbles come from the bottom of the pot, come to the surface and just go and many, many, many bubbles. And so the Buddha said also the feeling is not the self. If it were the self it would not lead to affliction. Then the next aggregate is the aggregate of perception. Sanya Kanda in Paris. And before I go into this, I have to say something a bit more general about this mental uh, aggregate. Mentality, or what we commonly call the mind or consciousness, is actually made up of several things that we call mind or consciousness. So one part of this is consciousness. Consciousness is one part of it and when consciousness arises it is always followed by certain mental factors. Consciousness can never arise alone. It's always accompanied by mental factors. And these mental factors, they actually number 52 in total. And they arise depending on the perceived object and depending on the reaction to this object. But seven of these 52 mental factors, seven of them arise all the time with every moment of consciousness, they are also there. And feeling is one of these mental factors, and as I just mentioned, feeling forms an aggregate by itself. Then perception is also a mental factor that arises with each moment of consciousness and it's also an aggregate in itself because feeling and perception they are quite important. They have quite important functions in the whole process of recognizing an object. And the remaining 50 mental factors they are they form one aggregate, which is the aggregate of mental formations. So back to the aggregate of perception. perception has the function to recognize the object, like feeling, It has the function to feel the object and um, experience it either as pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. And perception recognizes the object and that means it identifies the object. Consciousness itself just cognizes the object knows the object, but it cannot identify what it actually is. So that's the function of perception. So when an object comes to the mind, is perceived, then perception compares this experience with a previous similar experience and then comes to the conclusion that this, for example, visual object is a sheet of paper or a table or a microphone. So it is with perception that then a label or a designation comes up. House or tree or mountain or river, whatever. And depending on our accumulated experience and depending on our temporary mood, a certain object can be perceived in different ways. For example, one time I went on a pilgrimage to a famous Sayadaw, Aminya Sayadaw, and the Burmese family invited me and a Swiss friend who was also meditating at the center at that time. And we just came out of about five months of intensive meditation And so, as we were sitting in the car and driving along, we were talking to each other, catching up, (laughs) because we didn't talk for five months. And so, as we were talking to each other, all of a sudden, my friend said to me, Oh, did you see the black snake on the road? And I said, Huh? What black snake? It was just, a black piece of rubber on the road. So there we were. We both had seen the same thing, the same object, but for her, it was a black snake. For me, I perceived it as a piece of black rubber. There we were. Who of us was right? Another uh, nice example is um, in Ladakh, that area in the Indian Himalayas, which is a very remote area and there is one quite a big and fertile valley, which is called the Zanskar Valley people living there in summertime they could leave the valley, walk over the passes and go to Leh the capital of Ladakh but in winter time when there was snow uh, they couldn't leave the valley because too much snow on the passes and for them going to some place and things. Their means of transport were horses, donkeys and yaks. So they would ride a horse to go somewhere or transport things on the back of the horses, donkeys or yaks. And so it wasn't until about 30 years ago in 1974 that the first car reached that um, Zanskar Valley. They built a road, was more a dirt track. And so then one day, the first jeep arrived in the Zanskar Valley. And people, some of them having never left that valley, had never seen a car. And so, when this thing came, uh, people were riding on it, and they were bringing some material, unloading things from that very strange thing or animal. Yeah, because they did not recognize it as a car, and for them, something that moved that people can ride on, something that can transport things, was an animal. And so very quickly they went and brought some fresh grass and put it in front of it. <laughs> so perception is also not a solid, everlasting entity, also arising and disappearing very quickly. And the Buddha compared it to a mirage, something that is just uh, a delusion, a deception that dissolves when we want to get hold of it. And the next aggregate is the aggregate of mental formations. These are the remaining 50 mental factors. And this can be defined as the habitual reaction to, a, to an experience. Like um, hatred, uh, is a mental formation. Greed is a mental um, state or understanding, Panya, or faith, uh, confidence. So depending on the object, on the situation, then uh, the mind reacts differently. M- different uh, mental factors are then present or not. And this also is constantly changing all the time. And looking closer at these mental states which make up the aggregate of mental formations, they also have no solid substance. And that's why the Buddha compared them the trunk of a banana tree. Just layers after layer and you take them off and you find no solid core, no solid substance. And so lastly we come to the aggregate of consciousness. So in this particular sense it's not consciousness as a whole, but consciousness in this very specific meaning that consciousness itself only cognizes the object. And then it's perception, which says, this is a microphone, this is a fan. And as I said, consciousness as just these cognizant characteristic. And consciousness does not exist as a permanent entity which then perceives, cognizes objects, But also consciousness only arises uh, on, on conditions. We speak of eye consciousness, or of hearing consciousness, of smelling consciousness, tasting consciousness, touching consciousness, and the mind consciousness. And so, for seeing consciousness to arise, there need to be certain conditions present. So, for seeing consciousness to arise, we need eyes, functioning eyes, and we need a, a visible object. Only when the visible object, let's say this sheet of paper, comes in contact with our eye, only then the eye consciousness arises and cognizes the object. We sound or the hearing consciousness is the same in order to hear something we need some functioning ears we need an object a sound a noise and only when the noise hits the ear or comes in contact with the ear only then does hearing consciousness arise and in the same way It's with the smelling consciousness, tasting consciousness, touching consciousness, and the mind consciousness. If there is no sense base, like no eyes or ears, if there is no sense object, visible form or a sound, and if there is no contact between them, then the respective consciousness would not arise. Like if this room were completely dark, pitch dark, even though this table would be here and even though I had my eyes open but then my eyes could not see the table. I consciousness would not arise. Because, because of the darkness, there is no contact between the eyes and the table. So, as I said, consciousness never arises just as consciousness, but it's always accompanied by mental factors. It's said that the consciousness is the leader and the mental factors are the followers, but they always arise together. Consciousness is the boss. The mental factors are the workers. And this cognizing nature of consciousness is pure and clear it's not obstructed it's not defiled and the other day i used the example of the mirror like consciousness cognizes the object it's like a mirror that reflects the object Consciousness itself does not judge the object. It does not judge it good or bad. Consciousness does not even feel it as pleasant or unpleasant because that's the function of feeling. So, whatever object arises, consciousness sees it in its Pure, clean um, state. Or consciousness can also be compared with a clear blue sky when there are no clouds in the sky. And the different um, mental state that arise or The feelings that arise are like the clouds passing over the sky. Pleasantness, just like a cloud passing the sky. Or joy, mental state of joy is just a cloud passing over the sky. Hatred, another cloud that passes over the sky. And when the cloud has passed or dissolved, then the sky is as blue and clear as it was before. The clouds do not leave any stains in the sky. They leave no trace. So... Another comparison is that the consciousness is like clear, pure water. And the mental states that arise happiness, joy, frustration, anger, sadness, frustration, confidence, uh, rapture, whatever. These mental states are like colors that you put into the clear water. So, if you have a glass of pure, clear water, and if you put red dye into the water, the water will become red. If you put green dye into the water, it will become green. Red, uh, yellow dye will make the water yellow. So then, the water is not clear and pure anymore. And so, in the same way, the mental states that arise with consciousness, they color the pure, clear nature of the consciousness. So, if joy arises, then the consciousness is colored with joy. And so, we speak of a joyful consciousness, a joyful mind. If, however, anger arises, then that angry mental state colors the consciousness with its anger. And so we say an angry mind, an angry consciousness. Or if um, rapture arises, then (coughs) rapture colors the... um, consciousness with its uh, specific quality and so we say it's an enraptured mind but these mental states because they are not everlasting or permanent then when they disappear then we also say the mind is not angry anymore or the joy has gone and then the consciousness uh, is again pure or clear, not stained or not colored. So in this way, consciousness uh, can be understood or be realized and to see this very momentary arising of consciousness, of the seeing consciousness or hearing consciousness, smelling consciousness, etc., this needs quite a deep degree of concentration and quite a sharp and penetrating mindfulness. But it also Can be experienced that consciousness is just this series of moments of consciousness arising very rapidly, one after the other. And the Buddha compared consciousness to a conjurer, a conjurer that can create all different kinds of magical illusions. And also he said of consciousness that consciousness is not the self. It is not the seed of a self. If it were the self then it would not lead to affliction. So these are these five aggregates aggregates of materiality, of feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And these five aggregates make up a so-called person, an animal, a being. So they are ever-changing processes in a constant flux, never staying the same for two moments. When we practice Vipassana meditation, then this combination of changing forces, the aggregates become apparent. We can see them. And so when we observe our body and mind, then we can see the play of these aggregates. And with that, we can see through this wrong um, notion or wrong view of a I, me, or soul, which is permanent. So, if we uh, open up to all these different experiences and phenomena that uh, come up during the practice of meditation then he can become the witness of a very interesting play namely the play of the aggregate it's like looking for a kaleidoscope I don't know if you have had it as a toy when you were young or if your children have it, it's this thing, a tube, that a little hole, and you look through it, and then you see a constellation of colors and forms, and you turn it a little bit, and then a new form, new colors come up, and changing it again, and yet another uh, constellation comes up. And I was very fascinated looking, through my kaleidoscope and turning it and uh, seeing all these beautiful formations of stars and other things and it was never the same and sometimes I would get a very beautiful shape or form but because I was shaking a little bit my hand then it disappeared and something else came and then I wanted to have it back, and I tried to get it back, but I never could get it back. It was ever new forms and uh, shapes. And this is how our life actually is. It's just these uncountable variations of the different aggregates in their interplay never really the same for two moments. And this can be observed in meditation and fully be realized when the concentration and mindfulness is keen and sharp. And so then the sense of I or me observing and doing the meditation gets dissolved. And all that is remaining are the five aggregates. And this leads to right understanding and also leads to the cessation of suffering. I give you a lot of suffering, I think, (laughs) by making you sit such a long time. So may all of you uh, see and realize these five aggregates